Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished from the Classical Ideas podcast. This is a podcast run by Greg Soden, and it's absolutely terrific. If you like the NBN, I'm sure that you'll like Classical Ideas. You can find it at classicalideaspodcast.lipson.com or on iTunes. I hope you enjoy the following interview. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. As you can tell if you peruse my episode list, I like music. If you dig a bit deeper, you can tell I like my music loud and fast. Growing up, I got into punk and metal in 1994 with Green Day before finding Metallica, Pantera, Bad Religion, Pennywise, and many more that were extremely influential throughout the course of my life. I grew up in the golden era of Marilyn Manson and the moral panic that came with his album Antichrist Superstar. I remember having the chance to see Marilyn Manson on Halloween in 2000 or 2001 at the Fox Theater in St. Louis with my long-lost friend Mike. My recollection of us going to that concert is we were scheduled to work and the manager of our job wouldn't give us the night off, so we walked out in the middle of our shift and headed to the Marilyn Manson concert. That right there is the stuff teenage years are made of. I remember wearing a Misfits Skull logo t-shirt to the concert, and I thrust my fist in the air to beautiful people in lunchbox, knowing full well the social stigma of being associated with such a group. But everyone at the concert was super polite, and we got home safely. This is one of many experiences that I had at concerts in which uh, the group was seen to be not fully on the up and up by straight-laced society. So this is one example of my life about why I was drawn to the book and discussion today, The Devil's Music by Dr. Randall Stevens, Associate Professor of British and American Studies at the University of Oslo. Dr. Stevens and I came across one another online, and the book, which combines part rock and roll history, part American Christianity history, was an absolute delight for me to read. The Devil's Music, with its subtitle, How Christians Inspired, Condemned, and Embraced Rock and Roll, is out now from Harvard University Press, and it tells the story of how my experiences with rock and roll in the 1990s came to be dating back to the 1950s with the rise of Elvis Presley and more. From the inside cover of the book, a quote reads, When rock and roll emerged in the 1950s, ministers denounced it from their pulpits and Sunday school teachers warned of the music's demonic origins. The big beat, Billy Graham believed, was ever working in the world for evil. Yet by the early 2000s, Christian rock had become a billion-dollar industry. The Devil's Music tells the story of this transformation. So this is a fantastic conversation with Dr. Randall Stevens from the University of Oslo. You should definitely check out the book, The Devil's Music, out now from Harvard University Press, and his other books as well. And you can also find him on Twitter. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Randall Stevens from the University of Oslo.
Professor Stevens, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Can you just spend a moment to introduce yourself for the audience so we can kind of get a sense of what your work is about? Sure. Yeah, I'm a um, I'm an American historian, and I, I focus quite a bit in my work on religion. I've written about um, abolitionism in the 19th century, and I've um, worked on um, Pentecostalism. My first book was a history of Pentecostalism, and then later did more contemporary evangelicalism in a book that was about evangelical expertise and the kind of parallel culture of the evangelical world. And then the latest one kind of picks up on a, a theme that was interesting to me, and I'd, I'd been a, a music reviewer uh, years ago and done some music journalism, but I'd never written on the topic in, a, in an academic sense or in a, a kind of, um, you know, half academic, half trade book kind of sense. So that was, it was a fun um, departure from some of the stuff that I've done in the past. Excellent. And so your new book that caught my eye instantly whenever I saw um, information about it on Twitter is called The Devil's Music. Um, Can you give us just a little bit of the, like, uh, a little bit more of the backstory for what you did in journalism and, like, how you realized the connection between American Christianity and the... um, the beginnings of rock and roll back in the 1950s. How did you uh, find this story? Yeah, when I was when I was doing some music journalism in the in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was kind of at a point when there were some of these bands that were you know indie rock bands that were coming up that had uh, religious or even Christian dimensions to them that were actually critically acclaimed and and people were talking about them in ways that were really unlike how people had talked about a lot of, you know, so-called Christian rock before, like this group called Daniel Sun Family or Sufjan Stevens or um, a band called Soul Junk or Damian Gerardo. Um, and so I, I thought it'd be fun as, for, as a history topic to take on this genre of Christian rock that's probably one of the most maligned and hated um, and despised genres, and rightfully so in a lot of cases, because a lot of it's really uh, terrible. Um, <laughs> but then to kind of push against that and talk about how actually these boundaries, these lines that separate supposed secular uh, rock and roll from religious music are, aren't as fixed as we might kind of think they are. Um, so that was gave me kind of the... the um, Entree to the the first part of the book on the 1950s. Do you fit into uh, like either camp in the book? Like, do you fit into like the the Pentecostal camp, the rock and roll camp? Were you ever like in a band? Like, did you do you see yourself within the story of these two things coming together? Uh, a little bit. I was in a band in the late 90s and early 2000s, and we we did some touring, and we did play some of these venues that were like religious venues, but we also played it at bars and pubs. And and so I saw some of that world sort of firsthand, but I did keep it. I suppose if it, if it had been a book that had been with like um, uh, HarperCollins or a trade press like that, there probably would have been more of that personal sort of dimension to it because a lot of those, there's a certain kind of trade book that, you know, is like my journey through, yeah. uh, you know, the, the weird world of, of Christian rock. Um, but th- in this one, I, ke- I had, I, you know, I kind of kept a sort of distance from, from that. But I do suppose that, you know, having the perspective that I did gave me a different kind of um, uh, a perception of the whole thing. Excellent. So I, I love the title. And as I mentioned earlier, whenever I found you on Twitter a couple of months ago, the title, The Devil's Music jumped out at me so much for so many personal reasons dating back to like middle school for me um yeah i'm curious if there's any interesting backstory to the title and if this was the only title ever in contention for the book yeah that's that's a good question i mean we with the press we kicked around some different ideas for it and i wasn't too happy with the the pre colon part of the title the devil's music in part because um you know, it has been. It seems like it's been used a lot, and then there's also uh, a lot of times when people talk about the devil's music, they're they're alluding to blues, 
uh, into to blues in the in the earlier part of the 20th century or the mid century. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that was in in the in the research I did, you'd have people in these denominations who would repeatedly talk about rock, rock and roll, and then rock music being the devil's music. And also I kind of thought, well, it's probably, it's one of the things that people are most familiar with. So as a, as a kind of um, a disparaging or a, a, you know, the demonization of, of the music. Gotcha. Yeah. Is there a first person to whom the phrase the devil's music is attributed like were you able as a historian to like find the original usage of that term in uh in the writings and the archival work that you went through you know uh, i mean I, I could be wrong about this but the you see it pretty early on in relation to blues from you know at least i did in some of the earliest instances of of uh, black preachers talking about the the blues being the devil's music and so, I mean, I just kind of dipped my toe into some of that, you know, from the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder, it, it could even be, you know, perhaps it goes back to, uh, to to other genres, to other popular genres in, I mean, even maybe in the late 19th century. I mean, it would be curious to see if, you know, if even ragtime uh, and genres that shaded into jazz were called the devil's music. I, I mean, it's it's quite possible. Would the most famous example that you're referring to in blues be like Robert Johnson? Is that kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's definitely it. Um, and I, I mean, I knew a little bit about some of the the history about that, but I wanted to. And I think it when I when I had some people, different people, read earlier versions of this, some wondered if I should have taken the story back further and and talked a bit more about blues but then i i felt like well that would kind of take it in a different direction and that's such a that's such a rich field that you know people have really mined and and there are a lot of scholars who uh, work on that topic whether they're ethnomusicologists or that they're um you know social or cultural historians that i felt like oh that's that would be like um that really could be a whole other book Definitely. My favorite thing about this book, so I love that Metallica and ACDC and the Ramones and David Bowie are all in the same book as Jerry Falwell, Jimmy Swaggart, and Pat Robertson, but I love the archival discoveries that you made. And I really kind of want to talk to you about your research process here for a few minutes because there are so many little amazing like newspaper clips and um, like posters and flyers that you have strewn throughout the book. And it's really wonderful. Um, Where did you do your archival research specifically with uh, Pentecostalism history? Because that is just so prevalent throughout the book and it's um, so impressive. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. And that's one thing. I mean, I really hoped that would be something that would make it unique was just the the kinds of materials that I culled and went through. But yeah, I had um, I mean, I had pretty good research support from uh, Northumbria University and also Eastern Nazarene College when I was doing the initial research. And so a lot of times it was at um, at uh, Pentecostal denominational archives uh like the uh really early on like the assemblies of god archives that's in um springfield missouri and that's so that's the denomination that elvis presley and jerry lee lewis belong to and then i did some i mean there were some interesting kind of unusual places also where i did uh research on the fundamentalist side like bob jones university in south carolina uh which has just a tremendous treasure trove of fundamentalist materials and all sorts of anti-rock and roll pamphlets and books and, you know, um, subject folders. Wheaton, Illinois, in um, where uh, Billy Graham went to college, that was another one that had good materials. And then Fuller Theological Seminary in uh, just outside of Los Angeles in Pasadena. But it was just, you know, over the years, finding things and then trying to to do, you know, real specific keyword searches through um, newspaper archives. And now, I mean, you really couldn't have done that, you know, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, when I first started my my Ph.D. dissertation, that the technology just wasn't there yet. Um, And now so many 
um, newspapers and journals and books have been scanned that it's just it's unbelievable what kinds of materials you know we have at our fingertips now it's it's really um it's kind of overwhelming it's a little bit like um, netflix to the to the 10th power or something were the uh, were the organizations that you went to like you mentioned the assemblies of god uh centers and archives were places like that receptive to your proposal to come in and find anti-rock and roll um materials in order to write a book about this was is this something yeah. that they are like enthusiastic about seeing for themselves now yeah i mean they were they're pretty open about this um I think if the project, I mean, I'd be curious if the project had more of a political dimension to it, uh, I suppose, you know, it, it might have been a little different. There was one funny thing when I was at Bob Jones University, which is like the bastion for kind of um, rock solid fundamentalism and has this this history of racism that's really uh, seedy. The I think it was one of the last days I was there doing research one of the um, assistants in the archives gave me a, a tract, like a kind of witnessing tract that had like the, you know, whatever the spiritual laws on it. And I was like, wow, that's never happened that I've like been doing research and someone tries to witness to me like that. Hmm. So that was a, that was a new one to kind of chalk up, but typically they were really helpful and, and, you know, they, they had special collections and uh, of this kind of material or or like magazines and newspapers that you know I could go through where I found a lot of the material yeah one in the subtitle of your book it says that Christianity inspired and condemned and embraced rock and roll in that order so I'd imagine that if we were still in the condemnation phase that the research might have been a little trickier to undertake wouldn't it it would but I mean that said, uh, Bob Jones University was I think this is still the case to this day they still have a ban on uh, Christian rock music so there are these few holdouts that are are out there I mean that would be a really interesting thing just to know how many um, like academies and colleges and universities still draw the line on that because that says a lot about their relationship to pop culture and and kind of a little bit also about their um how they kind of wall themselves off. Can you tell me a little bit about the archival research for the rock and roll portions of the book? Where did you go that was sort of different than where you went to for the Pentecostal history? Sure. Yeah, I, um, most of that was in research libraries, you know, and um, and secondary uh, source materials. Like I, I did uh, an NEH uh, program at the University of Virginia, and that was just an amazing library that they have there. I mean, really, the the libraries in the United States compared to a lot of the ones in at um, higher education institutions in Britain, the ones in the U.S. are so much more extensive. Um, but but one of the really uh, a real gem in this research, uh, you know, people who research this kind of stuff is this Center for Popular Music Studies, which is at uh, Middle Tennessee State University. Oh, wow. And they have just this massive collection of sheet music and old 78s and, um, you know, like all the biographies that you can imagine on the first generation of rock and rollers. Um, I mean, that that kind of an institution uh, would be really good if you were doing, especially doing like early 20th century uh, music or if you were doing like hillbilly music or uh, race records. Uh, but, but there was a bunch of stuff there also on, on rock music. And they had, one of the things they had is they had these large subject folders. So you could find, you'd, you could search for, you know, a band or a, a performer, and then you'd just find press clippings and, um, uh, posters or, you know, uh, souvenir kind of items. So they, they had a great one for, for Elvis and, and on the Christian rock, Christian pop music side. I remember there even being a DC talk one, which is a, you know, late eighties, early nineties, uh, Christian rap group that still, you know, went further, uh, in beyond that in, in time period. Do you have a few moments where you were like in the archives or in your research process that just blew you away? Did you have to like stop and just like appreciate the moment or a, 
or a particular discovery as a historian? Like, do you have any favorite moments from the entire process? Yeah, one of those was when um, the the materials at the Assemblies of God archives that were about Elvis Presley, and there was this great little um, uh, box of of um, letters that were sent in to the denomination's headquarters by people who'd been reading about Elvis. With, oh, wow. Who, who were out there in the church. Because Elvis did these interviews, and he was saying, yeah, I'm a member of this First Assemblies of God church that's in um, Memphis, Tennessee. And so you'd have people from all over the country, especially the South, the American South, uh, writing in and saying, please tell us that, that we don't have anything to do with Elvis the pelvis and we want to make sure to distance ourselves from this um, young man of ill repute. And that was a real fun one because it was just, you know, it was like, it basically it was like anti-fan letters uh, that, you know, you would find. So you got to like sit in this library and read these 60-year-old letters? Yeah, and also the responses of um, the, uh, I think it was the general superintendent who was uh, writing back. And then the one of the general superintendents also um was writing to the pastor of that church in Memphis, the pastor of Elvis's church. His name was James Hamill. And so they had these, they were the the uh, original letters of their exchanges because Elvis went there quite a lot, especially as a young man. And it, and it became more difficult for him to attend when he became famous. Wonderful. So early in the book, uh, you mentioned the similarity between early rock and roll performance and Pentecostal preaching style. And for me, one of the things that I have difficulty with is that I don't know what the inside of 1950s Pentecostal churches look like, but but I've seen tons of footage of like early Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and all these guys that are super famous. Is there any like video footage inside 1950s Pentecostal churches that you've discovered anywhere? No, you know, that's a, that's a really good question because I was on the lookout for that for quite a while. And there could be, I think that quite likely there could be some of that at the um, International Pentecostal Holiness Church archives that's in Oklahoma Mm. or the Assemblies of God or the Church of God Cleveland that's in Tennessee. Um, But I, I was listening to quite a few records and also um, recordings of, of preachers of sermons, which are a real kind of untapped uh, source for material. But I relied, I had to rely quite a bit on, um, you know, sociological studies or anthropological studies where a scholar attended these services and then described the detail of, of what happened and, and what the performance was like. Um, also, newspaper accounts uh, from the 30s, 40s, and 50s of services. But that was one thing I was really wanting to try to kind of find. Um, and, uh, you know, it turned out to be kind of a needle in the haystack. But by looking at a bunch of these different studies, you got a, a pretty well-rounded picture. There was also, um, you know, some uh, memoirs from that period and kind of insider accounts where, people within these churches are writing about their experiences and, and what things looked like and what a typical service uh, was like. And that also came in really handy. Excellent. So I don't want to give any give away a bunch of the anecdotes in the book because this book is so full of fantastic little stories that you've discovered about um, American history and how Christianity and rock and roll intersect. But what is something that you think that like, ordinary um, people living in 2018, what do you think is something that everybody should know regarding the history of rock and roll and how it connects to Christianity in the 1950s? Like, What is the, the major like aha moment or the major thing that you think that anybody should know? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think people have a vague awareness of the Pentecostal connection to early rock and roll, but, but I think that, you know, the, maybe the general public doesn't really know too much about what uh, Pentecostalism entailed. And so, you know, many of these performers either either went to these churches that were tongue-speaking churches that practiced healing and believed in miracles and believed in, in prophecy and works of the Spirit and also had really kind of revved up services where they used guitars, they used drums sometimes. Um, and it you know, I think most people know about the link to, to gospel music, mm-hmm. 
how um, people like Ray Charles were inspired by gospel performers. But I think beyond that, it's the, you know, the connection to Pentecostalism, to people like Sister Rosetta Tharp, who was in the African-American Church of God in Christ, and how many of these people took cues from that experience. Little Richard was a Seventh-day Adventist, but he attended Pentecostal uh, churches quite a bit in Georgia and mentioned in his memoir that those were the favorite uh, churches for him to to attend. And so you have instances where, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis or, or Albus or Johnny Cash, who, I mean, even though Cash makes his career in country music early on, he's rockability, and he, uh, you know, has that, is associated with Sun Records in Memphis. Um, they talk about how formative this Pentecostal, uh, these Pentecostal experiences in their youth were for them. And I think that that deserves uh, a bit more attention, especially because of how critical it was in their development. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think about some of my own experiences in a, like a rock show at like a tiny little music venue where you're all crammed in there and everybody's sweaty and the band is like right in your face. And then the lead singer will like reach out and will like grab some girl's hand and then they'll look at each other and she will like freak out. And I think about moments like about how powerful a moment like that would be and how it could be a preacher reaching out and grabbing the hand of a congregant and establishing yeah. that emotional bond in that moment. And it seems yeah. like the two experiences could be so interconnected. I think you're right. I think also, you know, in some of the other research I've done, I think that there is a real, you know, there's one of the fears that I think Pentecostals and holiness people have is that these these other forms of entertainment kind of compete with their own religious entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's the whether that's movies or a rock and roll concert. And in, there were rare cases where I found, um, like David Wilkerson, who was a, a you know famous youth pastor, wrote this book called The Cross and the Switchblade, which was made into a film. He was um, a Pentecostal, and he talked about um, his experience with one of these rock and roll shows, and he said, this is like a Satan's Pentecost. It's like an inverted a kind of inverted church service. Yeah. I mean, he might have been, he was probably exaggerating things for effect, but there really is something there about, you know, the emotions and the, a kind of transcendent experience that people feel and the sense of community and um, how it all sort of works together to create this kind of magical feel for people. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things like that I noticed as I was reading the book is that the music that you describe and the rock and roll is not really the music and rock and roll that I have listened to in my life a whole lot. Like I was sure. into like punk rock and metal and like I, I came up listening to um you know, Marilyn Manson and Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Ozzy Osbourne and like 1980s hardcore and like Scandinavian yeah. black metal a little bit. Um, and I almost feel like this book could have a part two featuring deep dives into movements like that and other stuff that people have panicked about over the years. Like, are there any like omissions or bands that you were unable to include in the book that you would really like to yeah. if you ever wanted to do another book like around a similar topic? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm glad, actually, that you mentioned Ozzy, especially, because I was, you know, in the in the, 19, the mid-1980s, I was in my early teens, and that was a, a very memorable concert I went to in Kansas City was Ozzy on the Ultimate Sin Tour with Metallica opening yeah. up. And and the, you know, there really could have been, there, there probably could have been a chapter in this book that was just about the satanic panic in the 1980s, you know, and a, a whole section about Ozzy Osbourne. And the bat, and you know the the kind of um, hysteria that surrounded uh, his performances and what he represented. There was a, I mean, it, it reached such a level that even the the parody band Spinal Tap they did a a, a bit on SNL <laughs> at that in that period where they talked about being uh, Satanists. Yeah, and they said, you know, we're not waving our hats about it or anything, but yeah, we worship Satan. And <laughs> so I do think that. You know, especially because of there's so many different sort of angles of that as well. The the panic about um, explicit uh, labeling uh, on records and the um, uh, the 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 hearings, the the government 
hearings about this. And the, um, I mean, I did talk, I had a bit in the, in one of the chapters about backward masking, but even that, uh, because that was such a, you know, the, the idea that, uh, there were secret messages that were recorded backward right. on, on songs like Queens, another one bites the dust Yeah, or, um, you know, beat, there were certain Beatles songs. There were some ones that also uh, stairway to heaven was one of the main ones that was claimed. Uh, but you know, that, that generated so much media attention, um, that I could see somebody, you know, who worked a little bit more on media and, um, and sort of media and history and, uh, kind of mass panic, having some really interesting things to say about that. Yeah. Uh, I remember in sixth grade or seventh grade, 1996, um, Marilyn Manson put out Antichrist Superstar, and that was one of the most defining things on MTV for that entire year. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget it, just thinking about looking at the conversations and the condemnations and, um, you know, just the back and forth that went on regarding just a record, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, it, it's, I guess I'd be exaggerating a bit here, but it's almost as if the, you know, if, if Marilyn Manson kind of needed uh, the the energy from his denouncers, you know, mm. like it it's sort of it's like a um, it's it's sort of like a, a mutually beneficial sort of phenomenon. Very symbiotic. Yeah, yeah, symbiotic. That's a good word for it. You know, if you like watching, I'm sure you know if if you went back and watched Trinity Broadcasting Network or other even local Christian television stations or listen to radio stations at the time, there'd be just so much time and effort expended on, um, uh, you know, um, condemning and, 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 uh, actually being really explicit. That's the really interesting thing too, about some of these ministers. It's as if they were, you know, they were condemning, but at the same time they were titillating their audiences, um, which is a which is something that's been going on within American evangelicalism since the the 19th century to describe sin in such detail that it almost becomes pornographic. Oh, that's so interesting. And whenever all those things are happening, um, if something like that is on TV in a grandparent's house or an aunt and uncle's house, and there's like a seventh grader in the house who's on the fence, they're going to be like, who is this person that this is talking about? It's going to like drive them right into that. Like I did, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, but it is the case with almost any sort of controversy like that, you know, like the, the release of, uh, the last temptation of Christ, the, the fury that was generated on the Christian right about it actually was sort of, you know, was advertising for, for the film and some of the same kinds of denunciations of, uh, you know, whether it was Ozzy or Marilyn Manson or black metal. Yeah. Really. It's like a, it it is like a a seal of approval. Yeah. Well, and now you live right in the cradle of black metal in the world. That's right. So now that you're uh, over in Oslo, you'll have to, um, you know, take that into consideration whenever you're walking around the street and look out for it. I think that, uh, I don't know if they still have this, but my wife had told me some years ago that I think around the time of Easter, there's like a black metal tour through Oslo. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's hilarious. Um, so one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately in the United States is living in Missouri. Um, I would drive down the road and I would see churches that are the size of basketball arenas. Um, And this is a huge thing that's going on all over the country right now. And when you look out as a historian of religion, when you see these gigantic congregation American churches like live streaming their services or featuring nine or ten piece rock bands, like what runs through your mind as an expert of how this all came to be over the last 70 years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing phenomenon. I think it's, but it's so common now with, with a lot of non-denominational churches or even like, you know, with, within, um, the church of the Nazarene or within, uh, you know, certain Presbyterian churches or even Baptist churches that people almost take it for granted. But, you know, these were highly controversial things, especially the volume level and to have a, you know, a, a, an electric rock band up playing in front of everybody. And I was in one, uh, a church recently in, um, in Colorado that was one of these kind of mega churches. And, 
uh, it was so loud I had to wear earplugs. Yeah. Because uh, it was just kind of overwhelming. And I think they were playing, they were doing, early on they were doing covers of, um, of Led Zeppelin and, you know, just playing them straight, actually. Yeah. Well, and Jimmy, um, I mean, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin is like a noted occultist, you know, and he right. had such a huge um, level of interest in the occult that for that music to be played inside of an American Christian church is rather astonishing. But I think it does say something really interesting about the flexibility of evangelicalism. I think people might think of of conservative American Christianity as being inflexible and being kind of chained to the Republican Party, which, in you know, it, it is in certain ways. But it also is, you know, it has always been experimental and been willing to use, you know, the latest technology, radio really early on in the 1920s or mm-hmm. television with Oral Roberts healing campaigns, crusades in the 1950s, Billy Graham using television and radio, that it's it makes sense within the, the long arc of the history of conservative Christianity in the U.S. that that it would, you know, end up really looking like either a, a like a, a, a sports event or a rock concert. I mean, in part, in the 90s, the, um, the Promise Keepers movement kind of paved the way for some of that. Um, but that, that was another thing in the book that I, I probably could have I, – I mean, it would have been fun to actually – there's so many of these um, concerts or, or um, uh, religious services that are on uh, YouTube that you can watch. And so even like Liberty University, a fundamentalist university, has uh, rock music as part of its uh, chapel services. And um, that's just as unimaginable when you you know go back to the 1970s or even the 80s. Yeah. Um and, you know, one of the things that my own students in the classes that I've taught have really come to understand is some of that flexibility within evangelical Christianity that they would not have expected. Like, have I've had guests come in the room, um, and they'll ask them questions, and they'll notice that there are people just like them who are willing to change their mind and learn new things. Um, so I think that that's a, a really interesting and important stereotype to kind of bust when painting a group of people with a broad brush. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a quote, that, or did you want to say anything more about that? No, no, I just think that that's, yeah, I think that definitely fits that picture of, uh, of them. There was a, there's a, a you know, a kind of um, apocryphal, quote from the famous early 20th century evangelist Billy Sunday who said that he would stand on his head in a puddle of mud if it would uh, win someone to Jesus mm. uh, which is which fits with sort of you know being willing to do you know being willing to kind of uh, accommodate to the tastes of a 15 year old or an 18 year old in their music if if it uh, you know it helps out the, the cause of evangelism yeah and if it doesn't drive somebody away yeah, because they're the number one way. I mean, I feel like a, a really, really simple way to drive somebody away is to think about all the things that somebody loves and say how evil all of those things are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the book, you have a really amazing quote about fear. And I love this quote. And it says, um, quote, there was much to fear for evangelicals and other conservative Christians. The counterculture and the social revolutions of the 1960s appeared to be destroying the moral fabric of their country and Christian faith, end quote. Now, the fear theme rings loudly to me in the book. And I think about fear a lot today, you know, in the context of our nation today. So thinking about Christianity now, did the rock and roll nightmare and worries faced by American evangelicals come true? Or did they not, do you think? Well, they it, to, to a degree, they did come true, I think, about the, you know, the kind of crumbling of the of the moral ground on which they stood, the, mm-hmm. the sort of revolutions of the, of the um, 1960s, you know, when it comes to sexuality, homosexuality, um, uh, abortion, of course. And so, but, but then again, with, as far as the music goes, I think once, once these, once conservative Christians realized that they could kind of empty the lyric content and replace it with, Christian ideas and themes, then they could retain, you know, the, the heavy beat and the music. Um, so they've re- repurposed it. But I, I think that's a, a kind of an important theme. And I thought about it more after I actually wrote the book about fear. Mm-hmm. 
and especially in conversation with um, a historian, John Fia, who has a, a brand new book about Trump that's called Believe Me. Oh, yes, I've seen that. Yeah, and it's so it's about the I mean, this question that especially over here in, in the UK and in, in Norway and elsewhere in Europe asking how is how is it that evangelicals can support someone like Donald Trump? And I think there is a good case to be made that it, you know, it has to do with fears they have. It has to do with the culture wars that still, you know, bubble up out of the 1960s. Um, and this, you know, the Bob Woodward book that everybody's talking about right now, the the um, pre-colon title of it is Fear. Yeah. And I, th- I definitely think that's something that makes the culture wars burn so hot for religious conservatives is a fear of of a kind of America that they want, uh, that's vanishing. It also, it's, you know, it's, it's why I guess the slogan, which is a really kind of hollow, empty and stupid slogan, obviously the make America great again, why it resonates with so many people. And it seems that, I mean, the, the slogan is pretty ahistorical as well, if you ask me. Yeah. So, yep. I guess it's, it's sort of depending on this, you know, kind of this rose-colored uh, vision of, of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Which most of us can't even picture because we weren't there. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I really like is going back in time a little bit to a specific uh, section of the book is, well, first of all, how much did the Beatles mean to you as a music fan? Oh, I mean, I was a, a huge Beatles fan. It was, it, I still am. I mean, I, I, I still think about um, – I'm teach, probably teaching a class, a master's class on Anglo-American rock and roll in the, in the spring um, this year. And uh, sometimes I worry that you know, I'll sort of overemphasize the importance of the Beatles and I have to keep myself in check a little bit. <laughs> um, but just because I, I think in part – there's so many factors there about them, but because they lasted as long as they did at such a key pivotal point of of western history and the fact that they kind of reflected back to america american music but sort of through a different um kind of lens gotcha okay so the reason i want to talk i I wanted to ask that is because the beatles section of the book is so good and you 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 have this uh wording in there calling saying the beatles as religion and that issue stands out to me a lot and it connects to an episode of this actual show that I've done. So I had a professor from the UK. Uh, she's Northern Irish, but she's in um, Scotland. Her name is Frances Stewart, and she's a scholar in a field known as implicit religion based on the work of a man named Edward Bailey. Mm-hmm. And she writes in her book, the book is called Punk Rock is My Religion. And whenever I thought about the Beatles as religion and her book, Punk Rock as My as Religion, um, so we discussed how music can be like a surrogate or a stand-in <laughs> for religion. And mm-hmm. the Beatles as religion quote in the book captured that for me. But mm-hmm. it just sort of sort of stops short of actually being religion. What are mm-hmm. your thoughts of music being a surrogate or implicitly religious? Yeah, I think that's I mean it's it's fascinating because it and it really does connect with the the field of religious studies as I, as I understand it right now which I sort of dabble in a little bit but there's a lot of focus among scholars you know of sort of questioning just what exactly do we mean when we talk about religion as a as a category you know as something to be analyzed or or problematized and there's been a lot of pushing of of kind of the boundaries, you know, does it have to necessarily mean that it's, that there's a a view about the afterlife or a metaphysics or a systematic theology. So there's a great article I use with students by this uh, scholar, David Chedester, that treats rock and roll, uh, baseball, and now I'm blanking on, there's one other thing that it, um, uh, that it looks at that I'm, I'm blanking on, but uh, sort of pushing against the, you know, what we think of as having to be religious. Now, students usually in the classroom are very reluctant to kind of explore this or to think about this in a way that, yeah, well, something does seem to be kind of implicitly religious. So in, when I taught it in the UK, I always used um, uh, football, mm-hmm. you know, soccer. 
as, as an example and sort of the tribalism of it and, and the obsession that people have and kind of the hope that people have, the faith that they have in their teams. Uh, but it was interesting that students typically wouldn't, you know, they, they still wanted to kind of have these categories like, no, this thing is religious because people behave in this certain way and within a church and there's a theology or whatever. And this thing is, is not because it's in a different kind of realm. But I, I mean, especially with the Beatles, you know, we see uh, in, in, you know, from the very beginning when they first played in the United States in 1964, you have, you know, the, the kind of rioting that takes place around them, the the adoration. Uh, John Lennon later commenting on how um, people who were disabled in wheelchairs would be brought up to them, or in, you know back to their uh, to the dressing room, as if they were some kind of a Christ figure, mm-hmm. healers. Well, one of the things in in the book that I didn't know about was the later interviews with Lennon, where he's looking back on those moments, especially with his uh, his very controversial quote at the time that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, and later on, a couple years later, being interviewed and saying how terrified he was uh, for his yeah. own like safety based on mm-hmm. the response from that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is one of the one of the key reasons why they decided not to tour anymore. You know, if we're to believe um, what George Harrison said about it, what McCartney said about it, and then later in interviews uh, with, with Lennon, uh, that, you know, they had, there were death threats. There was a, you know, the Klan presence when they were in, I think it was Memphis, Tennessee. Um, there were all these, you know, like radio stations were setting up bonfires and, um, and it really, I think the the fun thing about it too, the interesting thing is it really does show, it, it reveals the split between the United States and the UK. Yeah. I mean, there was a little bit of controversy about it in England. Um, and I mean, there could have been a bit more maybe in Northern Ireland, but um, it was nothing like uh, what, what we saw at the time in, in the United States. And so, and this is at a point when when England's already kind of on the road to becoming post-Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also amazing, too, because now Paul McCartney is still one of the most beloved figures in rock and roll music, and he's in the United States all the time. Yes, yeah. So based on that, are you sort of impressed with how short the timeline seems to be from condemnation of rock and roll? to the embrace with regards to rock and roll and Christianity? Are you like, what are your thoughts on this timeline between the 1950s and seemingly the acceptance and embracing in the 1980s? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question because I think it, you know, it, it just sort of parallels a lot of the other changes of the, of the era. Like if we, if we just take, I mean, even the way that, uh, that a lot of these bands looked, you know, there were secular bands like the Beatles. I mean, the, the shift from how they looked in 1963 and 64 to 1969 when they looked like, you know, um, Russian Orthodox monks, mm-hmm. just sort of like covered in in uh, facial hair and beards. And I think a lot of this, the, the transformation of the 60s, it, you know, part of it does have to do with the the overwhelming presence of baby boomers and the the kind of obsession with youth and with newness and with change um you know and you can see that all across the board within you know art that's in galleries with the pop art movement um and i think that with rock music it it just became so powerful and something that couldn't be uh pushed aside or ignored by churches that were kind of always trying to be relevant um and there is a there's a shift too in in 1965 and 66, you know, within rock history when rock music is taking on more serious themes with the the influence of of Dylan and then later album oriented rock. So it's not just it can't just be dismissed as a silly kind of fad, you know, like it was a, as if it was just like the hula hoop or coonskin caps or the slinky. Yeah. Uh, it it now had a more of a grounding to it. Well, Professor Stevens, um, the book, The Devil's Music, is, I think, um, it's been an amazing book for me to read because as somebody who has an interest in rock and roll and American Christianity, 
I think that the synthesis of those two things is so fascinating to read about. And um, I hope that anybody who's interested in either or both of those topics will um, see the value in this book and give it a whirl because we did not ruin the book by any stretch of the imagination with our talk today. Um, So what is next for you? Do you have any projects in the works or any continuation of this topic or other topics? What are you up to? Well, there is one thing that's, um, I, I have one, I have quite a few sort of irons in the fire, but one is, um, to look a bit more at, um, British, um, experiments with Christian, uh, popular music and Christian rock. Cause there were so many of those happening in, in, uh, you know, around the time of the Beatles and then it diminishes quite a bit and then it becomes much more important in, in the U S so doing some comparative stuff about that. But uh, then I'm, I've been working on the Dust Bowl and American religion, so environmentalism and religion. And then I have a, a larger pet project that I'd like to do in the future that I haven't really done much research on at all, but looking at um, uh, religious fraudsters in the, in the 1800s and the early 1900s, people who intentionally uh, you know, kind of put on the mantle of a preacher or a kind of religious expert or a religious authority, but we're doing it to, uh, to trick people and to defraud people of money. Um, I think there's a, there would be a fun kind of classically American story to be told in that. And I think that that story would be really, really um, appealing to a quite, a quite a large audience, actually. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, there, and there are enough examples of this appearing in, um, you know, in the 19th century, especially at a time when you know, there aren't very many photographs of people that circulate and it's harder to kind of to um, to make sure that somebody's authentic. And this is a, and also that it's a theme that, you know, Mark Twain dwelt with and had a lot of fun with uh, in his writing and then other um, authors like uh, Sinclair Lewis later uh, would talk about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Professor Stevens, for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a really great conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soder. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.